The reading is on page 1058, 1058 in the Church Bibles, and it's Luke 14, starting at verse 25. 15, uh, 15. beg your pardon, thank you. <laughs> when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on, I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Julie. 
Uh, so just a reminder that if, uh, if any of the fireflies want to, want to be doing any activities, there are, uh, there are some in the, in the prayer chapel uh, for them if they, if they want. First come, first served. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> let's, let's pray together. Jesus, he said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit to speak to us through the word this morning. Lord, we, we've heard that there's a, a glorious invitation here. So hear us to help us to hear it properly and hearing it to respond to it with all that we have and all that we are. Amen. We, we all receive lots of invitations in the courses of our lives. Invitations for birthday parties, invitations to weddings, invitations to watch a football match, invitations uh, for after-work drinks, invitations to attend a, a cancer screening appointment, invitations to take up a new job, uh, invitations to go out on a date with someone. And there are some of those invitations that we jump at straight away. And it doesn't matter what we've got in our diary, we'll rearrange it. We'll beg favors. We'll make it work no matter what the cost. And then there are other invitations that we find ourselves scraping around for an excuse. Um, I think I'm washing my hair that night. It takes a long time. Um, so the question before us today is, what kind of an invitation is Jesus' invitation? Over the past weeks, we've been exploring from the Bible what it means to be a Christian. So we've seen that a Christian is someone who's saved by grace through faith in Ephesians 2. Uh, someone who's been born again, that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Someone who's a new creation in Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Someone who uh, is obedient to the truth, what uh, we were looking at last week. And today we're going to see that a Christian is someone who counts the cost. So let me just read for us again the words uh, of Jesus from verses 26 and 27. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, these are some of the toughest, most challenging words of Jesus in the New Testament. And we'll unpack what he means a little bit later on. But for now, I hope you'll agree with me, just from what we've heard and read, that counting the cost isn't a peripheral part of following Jesus. Do you agree with me on that? Okay. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say whoever... Uh, does not carry their cross and follow me, will struggle to be my disciple. He doesn't say, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me won't make it to grade eight as my disciple. 
He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Following a crucified Savior and not carrying our cross simply don't go together. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. There isn't a cost-free way of following Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here is that if we don't love him more than anything else in the world, and if we're not prepared to give up all that we have to follow him, we cannot be his disciple. Being a disciple means giving him the first place in our lives. The first place. Not joint first, first. Above yourself. Above your spouse if you're married. Above your children, if you have children. Above your house. Above your career. Above your savings and investments. Jesus will not play second fiddle. If anything is more important to us than him, he says we cannot be his disciple. That's what he means by saying we must hate mother or father, brother or sister. It's not, he's not saying that we must harbor ill will towards them. But that in comparison, our devotion, in comparison to our devotion to him, it will look as if we hate them. Because when the rubber hits the road, if there's a choice between being loyal to him or being loyal to anything or anyone else, it will always be him. Jesus can't be secondary to us. Jesus won't accept a negotiated surrender. Only an unconditional surrender will do. And I'm really aware that this is a really challenging word to bring. And that's why I encourage you every week to have your Bibles open in front of you. Because if you don't see what I'm saying in the warrant for it in the Bibles, then you can ignore it. Better yet, you can call me out on it. Because what I think doesn't matter. So, if you've got your Bible open still, or even if you haven't, just go to Luke 14, look at verses 26 and 27 with me. So looking at those words, do you agree with me that these are Jesus' words, not mine? This isn't just some personal hobby horse I'm on because I'm a spiritual masochist. Look at the passage. Am I making this up? Because if I am making it up, I'm a false teacher. But if I'm not making this up, what Jesus says here is of, is of a eternal significance to all of us. To be a Christian is to count the cost. And so if we agree that Jesus really did say these things, then we're left with two options. First, we can agree that Jesus said these things and not like it, in which case we're, we can treat Jesus like a, like a life coach, but not as our Lord. If you pick and choose which teachings you accept and which you reject, you're still in control. 
you're insisting that he follow you rather than you him. You are still your own Lord and Savior. But the second option is to accept what Jesus says is true and to seek to understand why it's good news. And that's what I want to try and do for us this morning. To understand how Jesus' words here are good news for us. And to see what the implication of that means uh, in terms of what it is to be a Christian. So here in a nutshell is what I hope we'll see from the passage in Luke 14 uh, this morning. That a Christian is someone who thinks that Jesus is utterly amazing and that there's no place they would rather be than with him. Now, there's a reason why I didn't just choose uh, verses 25 to 35 for our Bible reading today. I could have done that. That's the bit that obviously speaks about counting the cost. But I decided to include the parable of the great banquet that is immediately before it because I think Luke has placed these two teachings here side by side on purpose. They shed light on each other. Luke wants us to know that, yes, there is a cost to following Jesus, And becoming a Christian means counting that cost. But Luke also wants us to know that the cost is dwarfed by the cost of not following Jesus. And it's infinitely more than made up for in the blessings of following Jesus. So let's look at the parable and we'll see how it relates uh, to the second half. So a rich man plans a great dinner party, and he invites lots of people. When it's time for the dinner party, he sends messages to all those invited and says, Come on, all's prepared, come on in. But one by one, they all begin to beg off. One says, I've got to tie up loose ends on a business deal I'm working on. Another says, I've just purchased a new bit of technology, I need to test it out. Still another says, I just got married, I need to be at home with my wife. Now the rich man is furious. No expense has been spared in the preparation of this enormous dinner party. And those on the guest list have all said, sorry, too busy. Well, the rich man is determined that his great dinner isn't going to go to waste. So he gives his instructions to open up the invitation to anyone and everyone, literally to drag people in off the streets to come and enjoy the meal. I want my house full, he says. And guess what? God still wants his house full. Well, what's the point? The point is this. Jesus' ministry was all about giving out invitations to the great party that is the kingdom of God. But not everyone will accept the invitation. In fact, Jesus says that the people most likely to accept the invitation are the people we would think least likely to be invited. And it's not an accident that Jesus' words about the cost of discipleship are sandwiched in between the parables of the great banquet and the parables of the lost and found. And notice how chapter 15 begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus, uh, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who's accepted the invitation? The tax collectors and sinners. 
Do you see, this is, this is the parable of the great banquet. And so Jesus' call to discipleship is first and foremost an invitation. Yes, there's a cost, but before that, there's an invitation. Jesus invites us to experience the kingdom of God, the reign of God in our lives and in our world, here and now, so that we might do so forever. And this is the call that goes out, goes out to everyone. Come on in, enter the kingdom of God. It's ready in me, through me, now, today. I think Jesus' invitation goes something like this. Are you weary of trying to prove yourself all the time? Come on in and find rest for your soul. Are you hungry for more to life than you've ever yet tasted? Come on in and feast on the bread of life. Are you thirsty for a drink that will never run dry? Come on in and I'll give you the living waters of the Spirit to well up within you. Are you tired of seeking affirmation from other people? Come on in and know the freedom of being a child of God and living from his pleasure alone. Are you anxious and worried about life? Well, come on in and know the peace that passes understanding when you know that the Lord is your shepherd. And because the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want for anything. Are you lost in the darkness and you don't know which way is up, which way is down? Come on in and walk in the light of God. Are you guilty? Are you burdened by mistakes of your past that you just can't shake off? Come on in. You'll find forgiveness and a fresh start. Are you searching for meaning? Come on in and find the reason you're alive. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Are you looking to know who God is and what God's like? Come and sit down with him at his table. Come get to know him over a nice meal. That's the invitation. That's the call that goes out. That's the good news. So the question is, what do you say? Nah, you know what? I think I'm good trying to prove myself. I think I'm good. I quite enjoy the bitterness and the resentment that's in my heart. Love it. Now, you know what, I'm really happy medicating myself with drink and drugs and relationships so that I feel like a worthwhile human being. Charles Wesley, uh, the poet laureate of the Methodist revival, uh, wrote a 24-verse hymn based on this parable. Don't worry, we'll sing it all later. I know you'll enjoy that. Um, it's called Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. And here's how he imagines uh, the scene of people being excused. Have me excused, why will ye say? Why will ye for damnation pray? Have you excused from joy and peace? Have you excused from happiness? Excused from coming to a feast? Excused from being Jesus' guest? From knowing now your sins forgiven? From tasting here the joys of heaven? Excused, alas, why should you be from health and life and liberty, from entering into glorious rest, from leaning on your Savior's breast? 
the astonishing thing is that the master of the house gives us the ability to reject the invitation. And the impossible possibility is that people do every day. Why? Charles Wesley explains in the next verse. Oh, sorry, I think I doubled up on that, that one. Next one. There we go. Yet must I, Lord. So this is the, the master reporting back to the, uh, to the rich man. Yet must I, Lord, to thee complain. The world hath made thy offers vain. Too busy or too happy they. They will not, Lord, thy call obey. Why do people reject Jesus' invitation to the kingdom? It's the same reason that most of us would reject an invitation. Because we think we've got a better offer elsewhere. And it's not necessarily that they hate Jesus, but Jesus just doesn't make it high enough up their list of priorities for them to drop everything, rearrange their schedules, and come to the feast. He's not their number one. Something else is in first place in their lives. They just don't see Jesus as so supremely valuable that he's worth disrupting their lives in order to be at his banquet. And I just, I was really struck by this when I noticed this as I prepared for today. The three excuses the people in the parable give, none of them are bad excuses. They're all pretty legitimate. They're not saying, I'm sorry, I can't come because I'm busy running a drugs cartel and I've got a big shipment of cocaine coming in tonight. They don't say that. There's nothing wrong with buying a field or buying oxen or getting married. The problem isn't with those things per se. The problem is when they become more important than Jesus. And I think it's really interesting as well that the three excuses Jesus gives us in the parable reflect the three most insidious idols of the human heart. Power, money, sex. I've said it before, and no doubt in the time that I'm here I'll say it many times again. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. We turn down Jesus' invitation because we love power or money or sex more than him. The Apostle Paul gives us a really interesting insight into this in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. So he, he speaks about Demas, who's deserted him. He says, do your best to come to me quickly, writing to Timothy, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas made a shipwreck of his faith. Why? Because he loved this world more than he loved Jesus. On the contrary, those who accept the invitation to the gospel feast are those who know that there's no place on earth they would rather be than with Jesus. And this begins to get us at the intersection between verses 15 to 24 in that parable and Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship in verses 25 to 35. So the, the great theologian of the early church, Augustine, once said, 
He loves you too little, who loves anything together with you, which he loves not for your sake. In other words, once you realize the beauty of all that God is for us in Christ, you realize he's the feast. The invitation to the feast is feed on me. I'm the feast. To put anything, no matter how good those things above Jesus or even on a par with Jesus, is frankly blasphemy. God alone is our highest good and the one from whom all good flows. And that's why in our church mission statement, it says that we exist to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure. Not one treasure among many, their greatest treasure. They're number one. And I'm on a mission, personally, to stir up love for Jesus above every other love and to convince you all, as far as it lies within my power, by God empowering me with the Spirit, to convince you that he's worth it. Because he is. And only when we've taken the time to understand the nature of Jesus' invitation can we understand the cost of following him. And let's be Really clear on this. There is a cost to being a Christian. There are cherished sins and worldviews and priorities that we will have to give up in order to become Christians. But Jesus promises to repay us 100-fold in this life and in the life of the world to come. He says any cost pales into insignificance in the light of all the benefits, not only now, but into eternity. Even the greatest cost, death, when placed into that eternal perspective, is really small. David Platt writes, to let go of the pursuits, possessions, pleasures, safety, and security of this world in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what it costs, is not sacrificial as much as it is smart. When we see the enormity, the beauty, the generosity of Jesus' invitation, we'll see the costs of following him rather differently. Then, when you take up your cross and follow Jesus... It's like denying yourself tin so that you can have gold. When Jesus says, if you don't hate everything else, you cannot be my true disciple, what he's effectively saying is, go ahead, deny yourself that Big Mac at McDonald's so that you can have a seven-course meal at uh, Raymond Blanc's Le Manoir au Cat Zaison. Deny yourself that bottle of little essential cider in order to have a magnum of Verve Clicquot champagne. Deny yourself a wet weekend in Skegness for a month on the beach in Hawaii. That's what he's saying. Listen to these words. Someone's saying, I wouldn't mind a wet weekend in Skegness. Don't know how to recover from that. Um, Listen to these words of the great 
pioneering British missionary, David Livingstone, uh, who was speaking uh, over 150 years ago in 1857 to a group of Cambridge University students. He wrote this, or said this rather. For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. He was out in Africa for decades in the 1850s. I never made a sacrifice. He was constantly endangered by the tribal peoples that he was going to. I never made a sacrifice. What he's saying is, I've done a cost-benefit analysis, and by my calculations, the cost of me not following Jesus far exceeds the cost of me following Jesus. Dallas Willard, ding, 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 puts it like this. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. And C.S. Lewis says, our problem is not that we want too much, but that we want too little. We're like children fooling about with drink and sex and drugs. Like children making mud pies in the slums because they cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. Because they would rather spend a wet weekend in Skegness. (laughs) That's the way of the world. But a Christian is someone who loves Jesus as their greatest treasure. Someone who thinks that Jesus is utterly amazing and that there's no place they'd rather be than with him. Christians are those peculiar looking people in the eyes of the world who though they lose all that the world holds dear, count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Now, I'm aware that there are probably quite a few people here today who won't like this message. Some of you will probably think I'm being too extreme or I'm being unrealistic. Hopefully, you can at least see that there is some grounds for it in what Jesus says. You're in the the 18th century, a lot of the... um, uh, the, the preachers of revival, the Wesleys and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, were called enthusiasts. Basically, kind of a classic, um, uh, a classic criticism, like they take, take Jesus just a bit too seriously. 
Well, I take comfort in the words of C.T. Studd, the missionary who said, God's real people have always been called fanatics. You know, in a lot of ways, I'd really love to be able to say that there was a discipleship light option that I could give you. But there isn't. There's no such thing. Now, to be sure, you can, you can grow churches without preaching these kind of messages. But you can't grow churches full of radical, all-in, cross-shaped, lay your life down, go into all the nations and preach the gospel to the whole creation kind of Christians without these kind of messages. And frankly, they're the only kind of Christians I have an interest in being and in making, whether here or anywhere else. For when the world sees our readiness to count the cost, the world will say, wow, you've clearly found something in Jesus that's worth losing everything for. What is it? I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why the church in, in the West is so anemic is because we've drunk the humanist, this life is all there is, Kool-Aid of the culture, so unthinkingly. We're, frankly, we're just too at home in this world. We love our money and our possessions. We love being popular. We love being well thought of. We love being involved in the power structures of society. We love being safe. And frankly, we love all of those things more than we love Jesus. But we do so often, I'm speaking of myself as well, by thinking, falling ourselves into thinking that we can have it all. That we can follow Jesus on our own terms. Well, guess what? We can't. That would be to insist that he follows us. We don't get a veto over which of his teachings we live by and which we don't. <laughs> Jesus says, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Die to your own desires, to your own ideas of what's good and what makes for life to the full. And I hope what you can see in the text this morning is Jesus doesn't hide it away in the small print. It's not at the bottom of this contract. And you get there and it's like size two font. And you can't really read it, but you know, why not? I'll sign my name on it. Jesus doesn't do that. It's right there in black and white. You simply can't say he's not upfront with his terms and conditions. Which is why David Watson's words are spot on. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. If there's anywhere that you're holding out on him, he isn't Lord. He can't be Lord if you're still holding out. If you're holding out, if you're setting the terms, you're still the Lord. I was convicted of this recently. Um, as a family, we pray for um, persecuted Christians in con uh, different countries every day. Um, and there was one morning a couple of weeks ago when we were praying for uh, the persecuted church in Morocco. 
And as we were praying, I heard us praying that uh, God would uh, keep the Christians in Morocco safe. And in that moment, God challenged me. It doesn't happen that I could hear, hear those thoughts so clearly, you know, all that often. Certainly not an everyday thing, but I remember God saying to me, how about praying that they may be kept faithful? And it's not that I don't think that God wants us to pray for an end to persecution. But Jesus seemed to think that losing our faith was a greater danger than persecution itself. So just a a couple of chapters before um, our reading, Luke 12, uh, verse 5, Jesus says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, I think to Jesus, living in the West is actually far more dangerous as a Christian than being in Morocco. He said a couple of chapters later after this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I think he thinks that it's here in the safety and the comfort of the West that we're more easily lured into thinking that we need money, sex, and power more than we need Jesus. Don't worry, I'm landing the plane. John Piper writes this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And then he goes on to conclude... You're not a Christian if you value anything more than Jesus. These are hard words. But I think Jesus' invitation to the great party of God's kingdom can be summed up in the final words of Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Would you be excused from walking the path of life? Would you be excused from experiencing the fullness of joy? Would you be excused from knowing pleasures forevermore? I don't know about you, but I want to be at that party. No matter what it costs, I want to be at that party. And the invitation is free to all of you and everyone outside of here. It's free. You can't add to it, add to the salvation that Jesus has prepared for you, but it will cost you everything to accept it. You've got to give up your plans and your agenda in order to attend. 
And when you do, you'll find that whatever you give up in this life is infinitesimally small compared to what you'll gain, not only now, but for all eternity. There is a cost to following Jesus. question I want to leave us with this morning is, is he worth it? So I'll finish with these final, uh, the final verse of Charles Wesley's um, hymn that I've mentioned earlier. And then we're going to listen to a version of it. Don't worry, it's a shortened version, not all 24 verses. He says, this is the time. No more delay. This is the Lord's accepted day. Come in this moment at his call and live for him who died for all. So, Holy